If you're, uh, if you're new to Encounter or if you just haven't been around for a little while due to uh, Christmas or New Year's or whatever the case, we are in part two of a three-part series um, called Dysfunctional Families. Um, part of this comes out of um, walking through the department store or uh, Target and you, you enter a certain aisle, the picture frame aisle. And if you are in it or just looking down the aisle, you can see hundreds, if not thousands of picture frames, sometimes stacked uh, 20, 30 deep on the wall. And walking uh, through that aisle, down that aisle, you can see, um, I guess this would be uh, thousands of uh, people staring back at you. A certain kind of person, a, a happy person. They're almost always uh, laughing or uh, giggling about something. They're always doing something interesting like fishing or um, going canoe trips or, or something like that. Never in any one of these um, stock family photos is there like a family who's just vegging out on the couch watching rerun infomercials about the Snuggie. There's never roommates who are fighting over who lost at Trash Can Jenga this week. The people are always happy, always exciting, always doing something fascinating. And there's something about that 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 tells us, maybe whether we realize it or not, the message there is that this is what family is supposed to be like. And now this series is so um, timely because we're coming out of Thanksgiving, we're coming out of Christmas, and we're going, that's not what my family is like. Uh, My family is perhaps a bit more um, colorful than that. So we would be tempted to open up the Bible. You might have instincts to open up the story of the Bible and say, okay, If this is where I am and this is where I should be, how do I get there? How does a normal family operate? How can I I become that? And you might even be tempted to open up to the beginning of the Bible, the book of Genesis, which literally means the beginning. And friends, I have to just say, uh, great instincts, terrible in practice. I mean... Good for you for opening up the Bible and and for at least looking. But if you open up to the book of Genesis, uh, what you're going to find is anything but a normal, happy, functional family. Last week we heard the story about Adam and Eve, the first couple. And we said even though this is the first time on record where something goes wrong. It's the first time that, that anybody breaks any rules. And already Adam, him, he's already an expert at this blame game. And as he passes the blame ball off to his wife, Eve, who's now holding it, we find she's no stranger to the uh, professional blame ball at all. And so as that story continues, um, there's another story that follows a little ways after that. Uh, You might open up to the book of Noah and say, okay, this is what a happy nuclear family is all about. You know the children's song, uh, God told Noah to build me, or there's going to be uh, floody, floody. That's right, you got it. Some reservations there, but you know. So uh, gather up the animals by twosies, twosies, right? Put them in the archie, archie. You got it. 
little-known fourth version of that song, or fourth verse, is that um, after the flood, there uh, came to be uh, planted by Noah a vineyard vineyard. Yeah. And after he plants the vineyard and harvests the grapes and starts crushing them and fermenting them, he does his, uh, his homemade wine, drinks way too much, much of it, passes out naked in his tent, drunk. His son walks in, sees him there, and, and, and instead of like covering him up or doing anything for him, he goes out and gets his brothers and says, you got to get a look at dad. If you're looking for a normal family, you're not going to find it in Genesis. Later on in that story, uh, there came a man named uh, Jacob. Jacob works seven years to earn the right to ask his beautiful um, uh, girlfriend, I suppose it would be, uh, Rebecca, in marriage. And you think, what a romantic. Like, this should be a Matthew McConaughey movie. But... (laughs) At the end of the seven years, and getting ready to marry um, Rebecca, he wakes up the next morning, realizes that he not only didn't marry Rebecca, he accidentally marries her sister, Leah. Like, you can't make this, this sense of dysfunctional family up. And yet, this is the biblical story. This is um, the family that God chooses to work through. We're going to work our way through dropping at a few places in the story. And every time we do, just like with uh, Adam and Eve and this week's story and next week's, I want us to ask a simple question. When we look at a twisted, broken, dysfunctional family in the Bible, I want us to ask if God could work through them, what could he do through me? This morning, our, uh, our story is a familiar one, as many are in Genesis. And you may have heard it in Sunday school. You may have read it from the Bible itself. You may have caught references in uh, books, movies, uh, TV shows. It's that common. It's a story of Cain and Abel. And as soon as I say that, I know some people are kind of like mentally checking out because I've heard this one before. I know how it goes. One of them dies. It's not Cain. I want you just to hang on to that for just a moment. If you've heard the story, if you're familiar, if you've heard messages on it in the past, um, great, you've got an advantage. But just suspend that for just a moment because I think there's going to be a couple surprises. Hopefully there's going to be a couple things that maybe a, a cursory quick reading uh, you couldn't quite uh, pull out of the story. Um, it's told in an intentional kind of way. The author um, is writing through, and this is throughout Genesis, throughout a ton of these stories, uh, he, he's building up the tension. He's dropping clues along the way that are going to come in and, and like find their place, and everything's going to make sense by the end of the story and, and heighten that point even more. And what I prayed as we begun uh, the message part of the service today is that we're going to pray that we can find grace in these words, that we can find the story of God's love and forgiveness in every sentence, even though, uh, even though this is not a happy story. But let's uh, stick with it here now. Uh, starting it off, this is Genesis chapter 4, uh, first, uh, first verse, 
author is holding nothing back. Adam made love to his wife Eve. And she became pregnant, gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I've brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Some people think that there were twins. Cain was born first because of how that... That's just a fun fact, though. Now, Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked on fav- with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. Okay, now, like, pause it right there because I just want to make it utterly clear um, that this is not a story about God preferring um, meat over fruits and vegetables. I mean, this is not like God saying, I prefer the fat portions, the firstborn, over the fruit. We know that because, like I said, the author is dropping these clues throughout the story. And it's meant to highlight a few things. Um, so we've got Abel, and he's uh, got some flocks, he's got some animals, and there's Cain, who apparently more works like with the ground, and has got some fruits. Listen to the description that the author offers of these two. He says, <laughs> that was weird. <laughs> Amen, go in peace. Brian, last song. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, listen to the description of how the, uh, the author um, describes these two, uh, these two items. Um, Abel first. Abel brings fat portions from the firstborn of his flock. Now, I want to invite you to do something uh, a little ordinary, uh, un, uh, unorthodox. is to imagine for a moment... Everything that we have learned throughout the past like two or three hundred years of dietary nutrition. Forget everything that you know about carbs and fat and uh, calories. Forget all of that. And imagine just the steak on the grill with that white marbling throughout it. That, the part that's juicy, that's full of flavor, the, the, the best part of that steak. And while you're imagining that, do what you can to forget about the video you saw in ninth grade health class about how that cholesterol stops the heart. And just think about it from their perspective in him offering the fat portions from the flocks and saying, at the very least, what we see here is that Abel is offering the best part of what he has. At the same time, He's offering the first of what he has. Keep in mind, this is the first person who's born into this trade of farming. It's fair to say that he's got no idea uh, how this um, flocks are born, where the next ones are going to come from, if there's going to be any next ones. So by offering the fat portions of the firstborn, it's the author telling us that he is so um, reliant, he recognizes his dependence on God so heavily. And that is his offering. That is his thank you. Contrast that with Cain. The line before, when I read, and I quote, Cain brought some fruit. 
It's not like this is the juiciest papaya. This is the ripest load of bananas. This is the, the first haul he has from the season. There's nothing. Cain brought some fruit. Abel brought everything that he, the best of what he had, the first of what he had. Now, this has um, a contemporary sort of application. I mean, we can quickly identify this, especially coming off from Christmas, when, uh, when we're giving gifts, when we're used to that. And we maybe show up at the office or something like that, and, and two friends are giving a, a mutual friend uh, a Christmas present. And the two guys show up and say, here you go, we each got you something. Immediately, you're looking over at his and going, that box is a lot bigger than the one I'm holding. And a friend goes, uh, yeah, can I open them right now? Absolutely, go for it. Friend tears it into gift number one, and out of the large box, he pulls out a signed jersey from his favorite running back. Out of that box, he finds playoff tickets to the next round of playoffs. Out of that box, he finds a game ball from his high school senior season, the last game. This guy is looking at the gifts, and maybe there are tears welling up in his eyes as he goes, thank you. The level of thoughtfulness that goes into this gift, the level of care. You hand him a gift, and he opens it up. Pulling it out, he goes, a flashlight. Everybody can use one of these. <laughs> What's the emotion? If you're the one giving over the, the, the junk, the leftover, the second, third, hand-me-down kind of gift, what's the emotion in your heart? I think it's a cocktail of shame, maybe embarrassment, maybe just this, this instinct to, to get out of there. Fear. The other continues in the next line. He says, So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. That caught me by surprise. You see, I see Cain handing over not the best of what he has, not the first of what he has, but the leftovers of what he has. Why anger? On top of that, the word that's used here for anger is, uh, is literally, he was hot in his face, and his face was downcast. The, the image that the author calls to mind is this, this person who is so frustrated and so angry and just furious. His face is beating up red. It's, it's hot to the touch. That's, that's how angry he is. At Abel. You see, an initial reading of that, that makes no sense to me. Unless, of course, Cain is so entirely misinformed about how this system works. Unless, of course, Cain is so entirely misinformed of who God is. 
You see, I think Cain walks up to the altar and makes his offering and says, here, this is, this is my thank you note. And he thinks that's good enough. He thinks God thinks it's good enough until Abel walks up. And Abel walks up with the best of what he has, with the first of what he has, and says, I am so deeply grateful. Thank you. And Cain immediately goes into, he just wrecked the curve. Like God was probably okay with me and what I had to offer until this guy came along and just just wrecked everything. Now God knows how much I just don't care. And so that anger at Cain comes from a place, put bluntly, bad theology. Cain believes that God is a God who is comparing one person to the next to the next. And there's somehow this, this grade curve on the chart and that we're like in competition with each other for God's favor. That's not how God works. That's not how, that's not how grace works. We're going to see the sideways or the side door of grace in this story come in a number of different ways. The first one is that when God looks on these two. Notice how it's structured. Uh, verse, uh, end of verse 4, the Lord looked on f- with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. Notice that the author says God first looks on the person, not the offering. He doesn't look at some fruit that Cain offers up and say, based on this, I do not accept it. He doesn't look on the first and the best of what Abel offers up and say, based on what this is, I will either accept or reject this thank you, this gift. The author mentions God looks on the person, on the generous, on the thought, on the care that the person puts into the gift first. But he also looks at the stinginess, at the carelessness, at the lack of thought in the thank you. First and foremost, this is a condition of the individual's heart and not a competition between two. Nevertheless, Cain is very angry and the Lord said to Cain, why? Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. You must rule over it. If you're writing down the Cain and Abel story, um, and you haven't heard it for a long, long time, would you remember to put this passage in, to put this paragraph in? I wouldn't. Because I remember... Cain getting furiously uh, angry at Abel and then going out and then the field, skip right to the next door. But we have to see, God intervenes in the story and says, okay, Cain, I can see the hotness, the, the, the red in your face and say, dude, you've got a couple choices here. God steps in and, and breaks up the momentum of the story and he says, Cain, wait just a second because you are standing in front of two doors here, man. You have gone down this road. You've started down a path. I just want to let you know, you can still take door one. 
You can still come back from this. You can still, as he puts it in this paragraph, do what is right. And then Cain, will you not be accepted? You will. Or you can go further down the road. And Cain, you have to know that sin is crouching at your door. I wonder how many of us just came to hear those words. You have started down a path. You think, I am too far gone. You're not. The side door entrance of God's grace in this story is that he gives you a choice and says, you have another chance. You can break it up. You can stop. If you do what is right, can you not, will you not be accepted? You will. Cain takes his second chance. Throwing it away, entering door number two. Verse eight, Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. We're going to find there's a few legal terms that are used in the story, and this is the first one. It's called murder in the first degree. Which essentially means in that culture that they recognize, somebody hearing this story for the first time recognizes there's nothing in the field. There's no one to hear this. There's no one to witness this. Cain had a cold hearted plan to end his brother's life and takes it. The Lord said to Cain, where's your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? You may have heard that one before. Also a legal term. It's used hundreds of times in the Old Testament, uh, being a keeper. It's used in uh, several regards, in a way to say, I'm the one who has uh, responsibility. I'm the one who's, uh, whose job it is to uh, care for, to sustain, to provide for whatever I'm keeping. Usually it was in regards to, uh, as tragic as it is, Abel over his flock. Abel was the keeper of his flock. It was his job to care for, to sustain, to provide for this flock. It was used in that blessing that I mentioned at the beginning of the service today, the first word, may the Lord bless you and keep you. Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? It's a legal term. It's used hundreds of times for all sorts of different things. Not once is it ever used to describe a brother, sister, sibling relationship. The rhetorical question comes with the answer, am I my brother's keeper? Cain, you're not. But you're his brother. And doesn't that mean at least as much as being a keeper? The author is dropping these clues along the way. Something in the, I think it's five verses, he uses the word brother seven times. We're going to read the next paragraph, and you can see, it's almost like he goes out of his way to say, brother, he's your brother. The blood is crying out from the ground. Your brother's blood from your brother's hand. 
It's like the author is leveraging all this and saying, you're not his keeper, you're his brother. And that should mean at least as much. The side door entrance, the second side door entrance to grace in this seemingly graceless story is the fact. And he cries out and saying, am I my brother's keeper? He desperately needs one. And the fact that later on in the book of Numbers, God comes and he says to Moses, give the people this blessing. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. The side door entrance of grace in this story, the second one, is that God is our keeper. He's, our, he's the one who cares for us, who sustains us, who provides for us. Then God said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you're under a curse, driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. You can, you can hear the brother rep, repeated throughout. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You'll be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain says in response, My punishment is more than I can bear. Today, you're driving me from the land. I'll be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth. And whoever finds me will kill me. It's true. It's true in several places. Um, we can find both in the culture that they're writing from and in every culture around that area, it operated on an eye-for-eye, tooth-for-tooth, life-for-life kind of justice system. If someone dealt your, someone else in your family a blow, you would have the legal right, maybe even the responsibility, to avenge your family member, and come after the one who inflicted that harm. When Cain says, God, the punishment that I bear is too much. Whoever finds me is going to kill me. He is not exaggerating. It would be fair to say that the punishment of death is laying heavy on Cain. He was given an option to not go down this road. What's, he had an option to come back. He turns it down. He asks, am I my brother's keeper? No, you're his brother. He turns that down. He goes through with premeditated murder of his brother, and now the death sentence is weighing on him, and he's a, he's a restless wanderer from the rest of his life. Friends, that's where the story should end. It should end with the fact that this guy has a bounty on his head, and the next person he meets will have the right to end him. The third side door of grace in this story is that there's a couple more verses. But the Lord said to him, Not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. That makes no sense. 
He's been accused, tried, and found guilty. He's a sinner. He's a scoundrel. He deserves death. And one last time in the story of Cain, God intervenes. He says, I will protect you. I will uphold you. I will sustain you. Even though you don't deserve it, even though you are a scoundrel, you are a sinner, you are still mine. The series is about looking at a family who is broken, who is twisted, who is dysfunctional at levels we can only imagine. And look at what God does with them. We are scoundrels. We are sinners. The punishment is lying heavy on us. God will uphold us. God will sustain us. God will perfect us. I wonder, there's no way of knowing But I would not be surprised if someday, someday we are in heaven and we get to ask God face to face, what did that mark look like? And he says it was nail marks on his palm and scars from a thorny crown on his forehead. Because Christ took his place, he took our place.